All right, as I mentioned, we're going to start studying the book of Philemon. It's only one chapter, so we ought to be able to get through with it in four weeks. I mean, in four lessons. It's only two weeks, but four lessons starting today. Who can tell me something about the book of Philemon? It's not a book that's, that's studied very often. All right, first of all, it's another prison epistle. And so we got our first tie-in uh, to Paul being in Rome. Uh, there are uh, uh, several uh, epistles that Paul wrote in Rome. Uh, we just got through studying the book of Philippians, which was written to the church at Philippi. And that particular letter has all its nuances as far as him sitting in prison. But now we have another letter. Um, now we have another letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison. And this one has a totally different character than the one that we had read earlier. It also gives us an insight of, of some of the things that Paul was doing when he was in prison. Um, the Philippian letter dealt with basically the money that was sent to him by the church at Philippi and also dealt with the fact that he had a concern for the church there at Philippi, that they may remain united. He also answered some questions that the church at Philippi had about his well-being. And so that letter kind of dwelled on that. This letter has a totally different character. And this letter is an unusual letter in the fact that it was only one of its kind that Paul wrote. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But who else can tell me something about the book of Philemon? Something you might know about or think you know about it. All right. It's a very personal letter because it is the only letter that we have that is written to an individual. Now, I realize that we have Titus in First and Second Timothy. And um, that sounds like those are individual letters. And they are in the fact that they are addressed to an individual person, but they're actually addressed to the churches that are, that are being worked with, with Paul and Tim, uh, with Timothy. Whereas the book of Philemon is written directly to a person, and though a church is mentioned, it's really not about the church there. It's about this particular individual. And that makes you think about the fact that the Apostle Paul probably wrote all kinds of personal letters to people. But this is the only one that's been reserved for us by the Holy Spirit because there are, there are some things, evidently, that God wanted us to know. And so of all the personal letters that Paul wrote, and I bet he wrote thousands because he was a prolific writer, this is the only one that has been preserved for us, and it's interesting, um, as far as what books of the Bible that we are supposed to have, there has never been a question about this particular book. It has been a part of the New Testament canon from the very beginning, which is unusual that a personal letter would be part of that, but there's never been any big discussion down through the years about whether or not it should be included. Yes, Julie? All right. She's telling us a little bit more about what the whole letter is about. Uh, Philemon owned a slave by the name of Onesimus, and this letter is a letter that Paul wrote to Philemon concerning this particular slave by the name of Onesimus. Very good. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Anything anybody else like to add? All righty. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, this particular book. Before we actually get into the text, let's make sure we know what the book's about. Like I said, it's only 25 verses, so it's not going to take us long. Uh, but as I've already said, this was written in prison the same time that he wrote uh, the book of Philippians, and he wrote the book of, of Ephesians, and also the book of Colossians. Um, this was a uh, letter that was carried, of course, uh, with the Ephesians and the Colossians letter uh, by a guy by the name of Tychius. And um, 
So that kind of gives you an idea that when Paul was writing this letter to Philemon, he was also writing the book, the letter that he was going to write to the church at Ephesus, and also the, the, the um, letter that he was going to write to the church at Colossae, because all three of these letters were delivered at the same time. In fact, uh, Philemon, whom this letter is addressed to, lived in the city of Colossae. So it would be very convenient as he's dropping off the letter to the church there at Colossae, he would... Um, also be able to give this letter to Philemon. Now, interesting thing is, we're going to find out in just a moment, uh, guess where the church met in Colossae? In, in Philemon's house. So it didn't take the mailman a very long trip, this Tychius that was the mail delivered. All we had to do is have, here's one for the elders, and here's one for you, Philemon. And that took care of that. So, and as I said, uh, this was written while Paul was in Rome. And uh, we've already spent a lot of time talking about that when we talked about the book of Philemon, I mean the book of uh, Philippians. Let's talk about Onesimus. Onesimus is the subject of this particular letter. And as Julie has already said, Onesimus was a slave. We gather from reading this particular letter that evidently um, Onesimus, first of all, before he left, he stole some money or something from, from Philemon in order to make the journey. But he stole money from Philemon, and he fled his slavery, if you will, and made the thousand-mile journey to the city of Rome. And, of course, the reason why I suspect he went to the city of Rome was because of the fact, first of all, it was very far away from where Colossae was. Like I said, it's around 1,000 miles. But also, uh, why would you think somebody who was trying to hide from somebody and somebody who was a fugitive, why would they go to the city of Rome? Yes, Eric. Lots of people there. It'd be so easy to get lost in the crowd there. Uh, so many different places to hide. So many different areas where he could um, not be seen because he'd blend in so easily. So he, he arrives in the city of Rome, and we don't know how long he has been there. But through the providence of God and... and uh, it would have to be providence because what are the odds of this happening? Now, keep in mind, first of all, that Paul knows Philemon already before he writes this letter. He has evidently done some work with Philemon already. He refers to Philemon as being his fellow laborer. We don't know for sure what kind of work they've done together. We don't know if it was in the city of Colossae because as far as we know, Paul hadn't been to that city. It may have been in some other areas, but somehow or another, Paul knew Philemon and knew him very well in the fact that he knew his wife and knew his son. So they had a close relationship. So think about it, with all these millions of people teeming about the city of Rome, how is it that this runaway slave who is a slave of Philemon, who is a well-known friend of Paul, somehow or another comes in contact with Paul And Paul has the opportunity to teach him the gospel. And as the result of him being taught the gospel, he becomes a Christian. And Onesimus realizes there's a place where I need to go. I need to go back home. And the purpose of this letter is a letter explaining to Philemon about Onesimus and how Philemon should receive him. But I don't know about you, but I can see so much providence in that. Because just think, what are the odds of that happening? And because of that, I think even in the providence of God, that this all came about so we could have this particular letter, so we can study it even today. 
It all started with a man, a man who said, I'm, I'm tired of being a slave. I'm going to uh, run away from my master. I'm going to steal money to make the journey, evidently, and arrive in the city of Rome. And of all the places that he could be, somehow or another, we don't know how, but somehow or another, he came in contact with Paul. And they started talking, and Onesimus became a Christian and made the decision to uh, go back. Well, one of the reasons I think that God's providence provided this particular book for us is because in this particular short little epistle, personal epistle, uh, we see the beauty of the gospel, and we also learn something about the duty to others. And um, we need to understand that we have a duty, first of all, to the laws of the land. If the laws of the land are such that they do not uh, violate our uh, Christianity, as far as telling us to do something that we uh, conscientiously can't do, then we need to do it. Uh, secondly, it talks about our duty to others. Uh, I guess the biggest parallel we can make is most of us have an employer. Uh, some of us have employees, and we should treat them in a certain kind of way. And that's kind of the, the idea that we're going to be seeing in this particular text. So I think that's the reason why the providence of God, of course, uh, provided this. Um, as I've already said, the book is addressed to a man by the name of Philemon. Uh, he lived in the city of Colossae. Uh, he was a Christian, of course, and uh, somebody that evidently was extremely wealthy uh, because he had slaves and because of the fact that the church, uh, his house was big enough that the church could meet there. And we get the impression that the church at Colossae was not a small congregation. It was a fairly large congregation. So he had the means to provide a large enough place for this congregation to meet. Now, the big question that comes up when you study the book of Philemon and something that's been debated back and forth many, many years, probably going all the way back to the first century in the church then, here is a book that is written to a slave owner about a runaway slave. Yet, if you look at the book, and even if you read between the lines, really, um, Paul doesn't say anything about, uh, I'm not going to send you back an Esmus because slavery is cruel. He doesn't say anything to Philemon about letting an Esmus go. He doesn't say anything about slavery at all. And so it's pondered pe- bothered people because we know that slavery is a terrible and cruel thing. Uh, the very fact that somebody thinks they can own another human being and force that human being to become a living tool, if you will, is a heinous, heinous crime. And um, I think it's interesting that of all the nations in the world, um, it took the United States the last, the last nation to really realize this. It's amazing how the European nations and others uh, real, uh, realized that slavery was a, was a terrible situation. But even today, uh, there are repercussions because of slavery here in this country. But yet, you look at the book of Philemon, and you see an issue of a master and a slave, and nothing is said about slavery. In fact, if you go back and read the entire New Testament, there's nothing really said about slavery other than what slaves' duties are to masters and what masters' duties are to slaves. You go back to the Old Testament, and the only thing you find about slavery in the Old Testament is some regulations in the book of Leviticus that tell the Israelite people how to deal with their slaves and how to treat them. And so I feel like Jerry Seinfeld up here. What's the deal with that? Okay. 
And I agree with you to a certain extent. We often hear about indentured servants, and there were classes of indentured servants. But if we go back and look at history, we see that there were the other kind of slaves too. When Rome conquered lands, oftentimes they would take slaves. Um, Some of you may remember um, a Roman slave by the name of Spartacus. Ever heard that name before? I don't know if he really was a real person or not, but there was someone like him who led a slave revolt. And the slaves that revolted in Rome uh, were not indentured servants. They were people who had been captured during the Roman wars and were being living in the city of Rome and they were being used as uh, gladiators and other things. Uh, to get to Jeremy's point, there were two different kinds of slaves. There were the indentured servants who would sell themselves uh, to someone to pay off a debt, and they became literal slaves just like any other slave, the way that they were treated. And then there were slaves that were actual slaves. So we do have some of the flavor of the fact that these people put themselves into this own situation, but the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not Onesimus was that kind of slave or not. He could have been an indentured servant, and that's some things that cover him there, or he could have been an actual slave that was was bought by uh, Philemon uh, in one of the slave markets, because Rome had slave markets, okay? So we're still stuck with this prickly question. Um... Philemon is a Christian. Why in the world did Onesimus even have to believe him? Philemon was a Christian. Paul is a Christian, and he understands that slavery is wrong because his writings are very clear that there's no such thing as slavery in Christ. So, yeah, what's the deal with this? Yes, I like what you're saying there because you brought up Christianity, and Christianity is going to have a play in this. Uh, yes, Eric. All right. Both of y'all are hitting around what the problem we have here is. Keep in mind that when Paul wrote the book of Philemon, he was living in the world where there were more slaves than there were freemen. Okay? Historians estimate that at this time uh, in the, in the um, nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, that there were over 60 million slaves. It was a way of life. It was something that it was so ingrained into the, the society there that even the great philosopher uh, Aristotle made the point that it was obvious that men were meant to be certain kind of men. There were men who were meant to be noble men. There were men who meant to be workers. There were men who meant to be slaves, who carried water and hewed wood is the exact phrase that he used. Uh, this was a society that uh, even its uh, economy and everything was based on slavery. Now, I'm saying that not to say that it's right. I'm saying that to explain to you maybe just a little bit why Paul said nothing about it. Let's suppose that Paul, in his writings, not only to Philemon, but to the church at Ephesus, to Colossae, especially to the city of Rome where the empire had its capital, that he just wrote blazing, critical, terrible things about slavery and how wrong it is. And it certainly is wrong. And he urged um, Christians everywhere to, if you are a slave and you are a Christian, rebel against your master and try to flee and fight him. And and, um, we're going to put an end to this. Revolt. Tell me what the result would have been. What's that? Chaos. Tell me what it would have done to Christianity. 
In other words, Christianity would be known as a rebellious, revolting, um, rebel uh, thing that is trying to overturn, overturn um, the Roman Empire and everything that it's a part of. In a sense, Christianity did do that, though. You got Michael nodding his head there. How did it do that, Michael? It just did it in the right way. And it took some time. Um, 300 years later, uh, you have uh, a king, an emperor by the name of uh, Constantine, who made, of course, Christianity the national religion uh, for for the Roman Empire and also started doing away with slavery and that type of thing. Uh, as far as trying to make things, the society more Christian. And as the gospel spread and people had a more of an understanding of the gospel and more thinking about what Christ would do, we actually, for the most part, live in a world today that's without slavery. There are some places that still have some form of slavery, but it's not because they're a Christian nation. But a nation that calls itself a Christian nation no longer has slavery. And that's the, the, the ability of the gospel and Christianity to not only change the individual, but also change the world. And Paul understood it was a gradual process. He understood that it was a terrible thing, but he was living in the age and the society he was living in that he had to deal with the situation uh, that he had to deal with. And um, therefore, uh, in his epistles, he gives us some guidelines of how people should treat each other without at the same time abolishing or being critical of the situation. Uh, Even here, uh, he never once tells Philemon, you need to let Onesimus go, but he spends a lot of time about talking about how you should treat Onesimus because he's your brother in Christ. See, Christianity is about relationships. First of all, it's our relationship with God and his son Jesus Christ, but it's also about our relationship with other people. And Christianity uh, followed in its true form will eventually get rid of slavery without a single person saying you have to. Now, people have misused Christianity to how to get their point across, but if they go to the Bible and the Bible alone and just do what it says, they understand that if you're going to have the nature of Jesus Christ, there's no way in the world you can enslave another man and let him become your human tool. The love of Christ just simply can't do that. When you think about what Paul wrote in the book of Philippians, when he talks about Jesus Christ, who was equal with God, humbled himself and came to this earth and dwelt as a slave, if you will. The word there is for not servant, it's the word doulos, slave. You get more of an idea. And so I just want to make sure that as we study this book, we don't ever think that Paul is making an excuse for slavery, that he doesn't believe that slavery is a heinous, terrible sin, uh, but it was the situation that he was dealing in. Uh, Sometimes uh, you have to let uh, things take their course and let the heart change before you can let the actual situation in the world change. Um, A good friend of mine, and you've, of course, um, met some of you have met him because he did an evangelism workshop for us here many years ago, a guy by the name of Edwin Jones. Um, He was asked one time if he would go uh, protest at an abortion clinic. And he says, well, I could go and I could hold up a sign and I could holler at the people going in and whatnot, but a better way is to change their hearts. If I can get in touch with those people and, change the, and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there'll be no need for any protesting. Uh, more people we convert to Jesus Christ, the less things like that we're going to have in the world. 
whether it be the awful crime of killing unborn babies or whether it be the awful crime of holding someone in captivity and make them do your will. It's all about the changing of the heart because the gospel and Christianity is all about the heart. Any questions, comments, critiques, any rotten fruit you want to throw, anything? All right. Now, what's interesting about Onesimus, here was a man who ran away from home, from his master. He evidently stole money. Somehow or another, he came in contact with Paul in the city of Rome, and he became a Christian, and they both realized that if he was really going to be a Christian, then he needs to go back home and make some things right. Don't know how all this transpired, but we have pretty good historical evidence Fifty years later, there was a man by the name of Ignatius, and those of you who remember our class on church history, he was one of those early Christians who were martyred for their faith, and he has, had written some things that we can read um, that we might put in the realm of the apostolic fathers. He writes in his book, The Epistles of Ignatius, right before he was put to death for being a Christian, he talks about the el- one of the elders at the church at Ephesus, And guess what his name is? Onesimus. And it's obvious it's the same Onesimus because he uses some of the same phrases that the Apostle Paul uses to describe Onesimus. Do you have a question? Okay, I saw your hand pop up there for a minute. And so, to me, that's an astonishing thing. Here was a man who was a slave, and 50 years later he becomes... Uh, such an elder in the church at Ephesus that a man on his way to be executed in Rome makes mention of this elder, Onesimus. Now, a question that sometimes is raised is, was Onesimus still a slave when he was an elder? Don't know. He could have been, though. Um, he could have been still in that kind of relationship with, with uh, Philemon. It may have been, as some of you have mentioned, if he was an indentured servant, he would still have that obligation. Doesn't disqualify him from being an elder. Or it may have been that Philemon, because of the things that Paul wrote, uh, Philemon eventually gave uh, Onesimus his freedom, um, and then he, of course, eventually became an elder. But here's the thing that we need to make sure we understand and appreciate about Onesimus. Here was a man who was a slave, but that didn't stop his Christianity, did it? He didn't use that as an excuse and say, oh, I've been put in such a bad situation. There's no way I can work in the church. There's no way I can participate in the church. There's no way I can uh, be a Christian the way that I need to be a Christian. It's pretty clear cut from historical evidence that the same Onesimus that we're talking about in this book became an elder in the Lord's church at Ephesus. That's an amazing story, and it makes me all go back to the thought of the providence of God. This man who probably stole away in the middle of the night and had to hide out many different times to make sure he wasn't caught. And he finally makes it to the city of Rome. And when he gets there, he has no idea that one day he's going to be an elder in the Lord's church. Uh, Many years ago, when I was attending the church at Charlotte Avenue, just before I was a preacher, they were doing some work in the parking lot of that particular building, and there was a friend of mine there. Um, I won't tell you his name, but um, I was, we were talking about, the, talking about the fact that he was a Christian uh, because if anybody knew this particular person, they would thought, of all the people in the world, this person wouldn't be a Christian. 
But yet here he was, he was a Christian, and he was even working on a Saturday morning doing some improvements to a parking lot of, of the church building. And I just asked him, I said, because I, I, he was amazed by it and I was amazed by it, and I said, did you ever think just a couple years ago that you would be a Christian and you would be working in the church parking lot? And he said, Jim, if somebody said that to me a couple years ago, I probably would have cussed him out. That shows you the power of the gospel. And um, though Paul is in a situation that's going to take years for it to change, here we have a letter that in some ways is the beginning of that change. When Paul is talking to a slaveholder about his slave and talking about how that he should receive him when he gets back home. Now, I think that's probably enough background story on this now. Is there something else somebody wants to add? Everybody knows everything that they need to know about that. Okay, so now we can appreciate this book as we begin it. Um, I think it's interesting that um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, picked this book and read through it and studied it and got up and told his congregation, this book, he says, this book convinces me that every single one of us are Onesimus. Now, why would he say something like that? Well, what's the parallels we can make between us and Onesimus? Yes, sir. All right, we were slaves to sin. And what happened? Why are we no longer slaves to sin? All right, with the gospel. Onesimus was a slave. Gospel changed him, and he's going to be brought back to Philemon. But still, it's all through the grace of God. And by the grace of God, regardless of what our situation is in life, we have been saved. And that's really all that matters. And so it's no wonder Martin Luther said uh, we are all Onesimus because we are kind of Onesimus in this story. Um, Let's look at verse 1. And I'm on page page 270 in my Bible if it helps. I don't know if it helps you or not. But the the epistle of Paul to Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, um, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. All right, first thing I want you to notice, and of course we know Paul wrote this, there's never been any doubt to this, but notice he refers to himself as a prisoner. Um, Oftentimes, when he is identifying himself, and we've already talked about this in the last uh, bit on the book of Philemon, Uh, You always, people back then always immediately began with identifying who they were, so you wouldn't have to read to the end of the scroll. We oftentimes put down at the end of our letters who we are, and the person, they want to know who's writing them, they'll look at the bottom of the letter, which almost seems kind of silly. You have to go through the end of the letter to find out who's writing you, but it was really important in Paul's day because they had scrolls, and you didn't want to have to roll all the way to the end of the scroll and say, who is this from? They always told who they were from at the very beginning. And so Paul says, hey, it's me. But he refers to himself as prisoner. Normally, he would refer to him as an apostle or refer to him as a servant of Jesus Christ, as he did with the Philippian brethren. But here, even though he doesn't do it in the other prison epistles that he wrote, here he specifically mentions he's a prisoner. And why in this letter do you think he specifically mentions he's a prisoner? Yes, Jeremy. All right, very good. That Paul, he's kind of coy about things. And he wants, to under, he wants to go ahead and get Philemon to start thinking about the fact that here is somebody else in chains. 
In fact, it's interesting, if you start going through this short epistle, Paul mentions he's a prisoner six different times. He mentions it in this verse here, in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 13, in verse uh, 22 and 23, I believe. He emphasized he's a prisoner. And it's interesting, the word for prisoner here, that's been translated in the King James, prisoner. I'm just curious, anybody have anything different than prisoner? The actual Greek word means to be bound by chains. That's what the word literally means, to be bound by chains. And was Paul literally bound by chains? Wasn't he, Michael? How was he bound? You remember? He was chained to a guard 24-7. So he's really making a play on words here. When he uses this word, he's saying, here's a man who is bound by chains. The man that's addressing you is bound by chains. And some people also think that the reason why he didn't express his apostleship here is because of the fact that this is a personal letter. He's not speaking with uh, apostolic authority as far as a church is concerned, but this is a letter to an individual. And it may be he doesn't want to come on too strong, but he does want to, as Jeremy has brought out, maybe invoke some sympathy or empathy or whatever for Paul's situation, and perhaps that will cast some on Onesimus' situation. And so, but notice also in the text it says, not only is he, is, he, he is a prisoner, but it says he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, how in the world is he a prisoner of Jesus Christ? All right. Now, he's emphasizing to Philemon that the reason why he's a prisoner is not because he actually broke any law. He's, he's not in prison because of something he actually did that he's deserving of standing trial for. Uh, you know, he's not getting something he deserves here. Instead, the reason why he's in the situation that he's in is because he's a Christian. And so, notice what he's doing here at the very beginning of this letter. He's bringing out the fact that Paul is in a situation he shouldn't be, and he's in that situation because he's a Christian. So he's got already Philemon thinking, Oh, man, Paul's in a bad situation there. He's, in, he's, he's being held captive, um, and he's doing it because he's a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, I wonder what he's going to talk to me about. See how he's trying to start buttering the bread there just a little bit? Okay. But notice what else he does. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Now, <clears throat> Why in the world would he mention Timothy here? And by the way, I'm just curious. Uh, we got a kind of a mistranslation here in the King James. Uh, anybody got something different from our brother? In fact, even the King James is in italics because it's not in the original. Does anybody have something different? The actual translation is Timothy the brother. There's a definite article in front of it. Um, letting him know that here is someone who stands beside Paul. Uh, the King James translated it that way because obviously there's a reference there to the fact that Philemon knew who Timothy was or it wouldn't make any difference. Why bring up Timothy? But Paul's making a very important point here. And he only mentions Timothy this one time in this book, but he does it for a reason, we believe. The things that Paul is about to say, Timothy is standing behind every word that he says. The double, the emphasis, if you will. These aren't just words that I think from my personal point of view. 
But this is something that Timothy agrees with me also. And that's the only reason why we uh, perhaps would make mention of Timothy, other than the fact that maybe Philemon knew him. But I don't think Paul does anything by accident. And so he says um, who he is, and he, of course, now addresses uh, who the letter is written to. He refers to him as Philemon, and we've already talked about how that he was living in the city of Classe. He was a Christian. He evidently was a very wealthy man. And uh, as we're going to find out in verse 2, this is where the church evidently met. But he makes a play on words here. Uh, Notice the name Philemon, and he says, Our dearly beloved. Now, why is that kind of a play on words? Go back and think about some preachers you might have heard in the past that talk about the different Greek words for love. All right, we remember agape love, don't we? That's the highest form of love. Um, Other Greek words for love, you have the Greek word eros, which means uh, sexual love. Uh, You have the Greek word storge, which means family love. But then there's the one that the Bible uses phileo, Um, means to love like a brother or love in a special kind of way. In fact, we have a city in in the United States called Philadelphia, and that's translated as city of brotherly love. So here you have a man whose name is based on the word love. It's interesting Um, It's not in the Bible this way, but you go back and look at ancient Greek words, the word Philemon actually means to kiss. But my point is, Paul's making a play on words here, your name is love, and you are loved. Now what is he doing once again? At the very beginning of this letter, he's setting the stage, I love you. I love you, and the things I'm going to tell you is out of love. When people know how much you care, then they maybe care about how much you know, as the saying has been said somehow or another, back and forth. So he refers to his uh, love. He refers next in the verse that he is a fellow laborer. And we don't know in what connection Philemon had worked with Paul, but evidently somehow or another he has worked with Paul, and cause he, therefore he refers to him as his fellow laborer. So we've got a whole lot going on in verse 1 that maybe we overlooked when we first looked at it. But we see Paul setting the stage, if you will, for the things that he's going to write. He points out the fact that he is a prisoner, and he's a prisoner for nothing he has actually done. Maybe in allusion to the fact that um, Onesimus didn't deserve what he is getting, and he too is a prisoner. He brings out the fact that Timothy is standing beside him on this. And he brings out the fact that you are someone who is loved and therefore you need to show love and we are both workers together in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He has done a lot of stuff there. You need your mommy? Or you're, what are you doing, sweetie? You're waiting? Okay, my clock off? No. Okay, we got a few more minutes. Hazel's just standing out in the hallway. I guess the class got out early or something. Anyway, um, but then verse 2. It says, to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Now, we've already brought out the fact that the church met in his house, and so uh, that's a pretty astonishing thing. It shows you how involved this particular man was in the work of the church. But we need to figure out who these two other people are. He says, to our beloved Aphia and Archippus. Who are those two people? 
And why are they being brought up in this particular letter to, this private letter to um, Philemon? I think she was his wife. I think Paul had such a close relationship with this family that he knew who his wife was and could call her by name. Now, it's interesting, the King James says to our beloved Aphia, but somebody has some different things in their, in their Bible. Sister, our sister, pointing out the fact that um, she was also a Christian and how that she uh, was more than likely his wife is the reason why it's being brought up. What, what about Archippus? All right, he could have been the son. So he's addressing the entire family. He mentions him, and he mentions his wife, and mentions his son. Now, once again, we don't know for sure what's going on here. Uh, Normally, Paul doesn't mention entire families when he's talking to a family, but he may be, in this particular case, emphasizing family. How that we as Christians are all part of a family, and that's why some of the other translations translate it as our sister. Now, Paul says our sister, referring to, first of all, Philemon, who's married to this woman, he's his wife, she's his wife, but she's also our sister in Christ. Paul says, she's my sister too. Now, if that is the case, and Onesimus is now a Christian, what does that make him? A brother. You see what he's doing here about changing the relationship that exists between the slave and the master? Okay. And Archippus is unusual because of the fact that evidently Archippus, if we are correct, was the preacher for the church at Colossae. In the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 17, uh, this man is mentioned, and most everyone thinks it's the same man uh, because this is the same time period, and the book of Colossians was written at the exact same time that Philemon was. So they think that Philemon's son was the preacher there at the church at Colossae that met in his house. And so, uh, once again, that's how the relationship is. All right, verse 3. Uh, as was common in this... I'm sorry, go ahead, Glenn. <clears throat> okay. Uh, do you all hear that? Um, of course, this is based on tradition. We don't have any biblical evidence of this. But uh, Glenn just said that all these people that Paul's addressing to here uh, more than likely were stoned to death because of Christian persecution during the reign of Nero. And, of course, that's who is reigning right now as Paul writes this particular letter. Good point. Anything else anybody would like to bring out? Yes, sir. Very good point. Excellent point. Um, not only does Philemon need to receive Onesimus back as a brother in Christ, the entire family does. Very good point. Thank you for bringing that out. Anything else? All right. Well, we're going to have to stop then, but we'll pick this up on Wednesday night. Thank you for your comments.